Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Andrew and I are your co-hosts for today, and we're talking about some exciting new developments in the area of comparative genomics. And our guests today are Dr. Zaman Iqbal, who is a research group leader at the European Bioinformatics Institute. He leads a computational genomics research group working on genetic variation in microbes, developing methods for representing and understanding complex genetic variation, and exploring surveillance and diagnostics for antimicrobial resistance. We're also joined by Dr. Grace Blackwell, who is a postdoctoral fellow working jointly at the European Bioinformatics Institute in Zan's group and in Nick Thompson's group at the Wellcome Sanger Institute. So welcome to you both. Thanks for the invite. So let's start off with something easy. Normally we ask guests, who are you and what do you normally do? I'm a computational biologist. I trained as a mathematician once upon a time and then as a software engineer once upon a time, a bit more recently, and then moved into genomics. I spend my time thinking about how bacteria evolve, how we can sort of conceive of bacterial and writing algorithms for doing that. And another half of my life is uh, works on uh, tuberculosis and moving TB sequencing into the clinic. All right, and Grace? Yeah, so as mentioned, I'm a postdoctoral fellow, but during my PhD, I was trained as you know a wet lab microbiologist with a bit of a genomic sort of aspect where looking into mobile genetic elements and how they move antimicrobial resistance genes around. And so when I came to EBI, I wanted to still keep that focus of looking at M- MGEs, but on a much larger scale. So with Nick, I've yeah learned a lot more bioinformatic and computational skills to be able to do so. Okay, so first question everyone really wants to know what anyone who works in UBI is, are you completely loaded? Do you have tax-free cars? You've got all this data at your disposal, you know, the entire world's data, you know, right there. And what are you going to do with it? So I'm, I moved to EBI in 2017. And the first thing, I arrived at the point when we were just sort of in the middle of trying to trial Big Z on a big data set. And I was like convinced this was going to be perfect because I could, I'd be able just to run jobs on the cl- on the cluster and they would be able to see the ENA like locally on the disk. And so everything would be like super easy. And that was when I realized that life's not that simple because a cloud is never where you think it is, acetamine. And so the ENA isn't, you know, isn't, the data isn't physically there. So yeah, I ended up failing badly. My PhD student ended up SCPing a lot more data than we ever expected to SCP around. ABI is an exciting place. I mean, there's lots of people. I mean, it, it is exciting to have all of that data around and to the combination of actually there's two different things. One is thinking about public health stuff and really, really thinking about what people need practically. I think that changes the questions you ask. And so the Big Z stuff and, and Grace's stuff all tr- really triggered off our us trying to work out what we would do when you really had millions and millions of genomes and how you were going to query them. And we wanted to do that for surveillance. But yeah, so it's exciting you being there with, with people who care about sort of looking after the data. I don't have a, you know, a Rolls Royce or a, or a you know, a 
diplomatic community or anything like that, sadly. So I really want Big Z in production, you know, because for me, I need to go on fishing expeditions all the time, right? So mm-hmm. just the other day, I asked Nabil, could he look up some weird and wonderful genus or species for me and get everything that's there? And I, I know there is, you know, a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand of these particular species in, in, in the EBI. But what's the best way to pull those out, you know, and identify them? And not only that, to identify the ones that I want for my clade, you know, because I know... There, there is a bit of a, an emerging cluster there, but I only want the specific ones, but I'm probably going to have to trawl through tens of thousands of different species, different genomes to actually pull out the, you know, probably 20 that I need. So what is the best way to do it? Do you have a solution for me or am I still going to wait for Big Z to come along? I don't think there's, I don't think there's one single answer. I, I, I Okay, there's, there's a technical question and there's a practical question. So technically, sometimes what you want is you want to know whether there's some specific sequence there and then... Big Z or Cobbs or other, I mean, there are clever people doing better things than Cobbs now, but it's basically sequence search or ideally blasty type stuff rather than just presence. But then, but that's only half of it. Like, you know, sometimes someone wants to know, can I have a hundred genomes that roughly represent my species, the whole diversity of the species? And Big Z is not the right thing for that. You know, you want something that represents the you want genetic distances of all your stuff basically from each other or a tree or something like that. And and sometimes you want to know, is my is my thing like your thing? You know, you want something like, you know, what's the nearest thing to my thing? And I think we're just going to, we're going to end up with having to index in multiple ways for multiple types of query. And, and really, I think the thing that we don't have that we need is a general open API that allows you to query multiple databases and say, I want to make this type of, you know, if you support MASH, can you tell me if I've got anything like this? And if you support you know, sequence search, can, do you have this sequence and that kind of thing? And we, it's just a, it's a sort of obvious thing, but we should have a, an open API that, that allows you to specify what kind of query you want and the, and the server can reply saying yes or no, I don't support it. And, you know, and, th- and that way, you know, you're great. I mean, Grace has done an amazing job with all of this data and other people are doing amazing jobs with other chunks of data around the place. I, either we spend all of our lives continually aggregating it or you can guess which answer, we, we find a way to actually talk between these these databases and in some cases they won't there'd be legal reasons why they don't they can't share or strong preferences but they might be up for saying yes i do have something like that so grace what is cob cob stands for compact bit slice signature index and it's in my kind of view because i'm not a developer it's like big z 2.0 so it indexes in the same way my best of my knowledge but it's just more compact so it means that when I created this index, it was now not 80 terabytes, it was only 800 gigs, and we could actually perform searches a lot faster. Big Z basically makes a massive rectangle, a big matrix of Bloom indexes. Cobbs pays attention to the, some of the genomes being smaller. And so you actually, it's like, it's like integration, really. You, you, you have rectangles underneath the curve instead of one massive rectangle. And so what can you get out of it? Like, what are the inputs to it and what are the outputs from it? Yeah, so you can query any sequence. So this could be a gene, particular part of a gene that covers a SNP or even an entire plasmid, which we, I've done for quite a few people. And so what it does is it splits your query into its overlapping KMERS and then queries each of those KMERS for its presence or absence in the index. And usually have to specify a threshold. So how many of those KMERS have to be present for you to get uh, the resulting hit and yeah and then it will spit out at the end a list of the sample IDs that have your query of interest and the specific threshold that's present and it does it does really well for identifying sequences that are quite close to what you query but 
due to the way it needs a perfect match for each of these k-mers. It's not good for identifying more divergent sequences. So would that be useful for, say, uh, looking at plasmids and move around between different species? Or- yeah, yeah, I've done that for that. So one of my projects that I'm doing at the moment is we're taking one of the replicons for the small plasmids, uh, colRNA one and pulling out all of the assemblies that have that plasmid. And I've used COBS to do that. And that's and that's across all of kind of proteobacteria that plasmid is found. And have you noticed any unusual signals? Like I, I personally, as a computer scientist, was surprised when I saw, say, a plasmid from E. coli turning up in salmonella. But have you noticed anything else like that? Yeah, host range of plasmids is, for some, is quite well known how far they can go. Some can actually go across uh, phyla, which I think is pretty amazing to have the replication system work that well. But others we know are more restricted. And what I do find is really cool is when you do have identical sequence of uh, plasmid in different species, especially over time, that can happen as well. When So these elements, I just think are quite amazing in the way that they can spread and evolve, but also stay the same for so long. What kind of size of uh, cameras can you support? Like, can you support, say, PCR primers? Could you use for primer search, you know, and seeing which primers will work best for one particular species, that kind of thing? There's no reason why you couldn't do that. At the moment, we've indexed it for 31 mers. We very nearly, I mean, we actually, so in the back, it's annoying that we've got 90% of a job done. We set up a system so that we could try and live keep up with it. And and while we were at it, we decided we were going to index everything at 15 and 31, so that we'd have both. And we got through to like January 2020, more or less. And then some people left the team and COVID happened and all the rest of it. And so a whole plan of moving that from research to ENA core basically fell, o- fell over. But we need to restart and try and catch up with that. Like there's, there's what, 660,000 genomes in, in Grace's data set, and there's now 1.7 million in the ENA. So we really need to get our skates on to catch up with them. Well, don't worry, there's been no uh, sequencing of bacteria in the past year and a half anyway. So Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, imagine what it could have been at. I mean, it's kind of exciting that, I mean, some of the questions with like host ranges of mobile elements and things like that, It'd be quite hard to design a study to to sample widely enough the phylogeny. You see what I mean? I mean, you would you would the the things that we found, you know, they're widely enough spread that you wouldn't you wouldn't know to go and look there. You see what I mean? It's only with this gradually accumulated massive data set from from all kinds of people that you find all this stuff that you would never know to look for. That's one of the exciting things, really. That we've got it's a it's a massive shared resource and. We ought to be able to make better use of it. So what kind of memory do you need for a system like that? Not much. Actually, it's all on disk. I mean, so maybe a gig or two, but that, the limitation is actually disk speed. So ideally, it would all be an SSD or we've actually built an aggregation thing so you can query multiple, you know, multiple indexes. I mean, it's, it's much more scalable if you can split many smaller indexes across different servers. Are you able to look at AMR genes over all species simultaneously and get kind of like a high level satellite overview of how that is and how it changes over time? Yeah, so I that's one of the analyses that we did with the paper. So instead of doing it via the COBS, instead I actually ran NCBI's AMR finder on each of the genomes individually. And so that reported to us any sort of predicted antimicrobial resistance genes for the acquired ones. We didn't end up in, uh, including SNPs. But as for, and yeah, so we we're able to look, you know, what genes are where and, you know, how many genes, antibiotic resistance resistant genes are in a specific genome. We were slightly limited on over time as we were based off the metadata that you get from a read submission, which doesn't include isolation date. And so instead we were having to use date made public 
as our sort of age estimation of that data set. So we've been talking about a range of different different topics, and a lot of this is actually encapsulated in this recent preprint from the both of you and your colleagues. So can, can you take us through that? So this is the uh, recent bioarchive, it's out on bioarchive as a preprint, called Exploring Bacterial Diversity via a Curated and Searchable Snapshot of archived DNA sequences. And we'll put a link to that in the show so people can find it. So can you take us through it maybe, Grace, what was the motivation for this? I mean, a lot of it we've kind of touched on in terms of just getting on top of all the data out there, but what was it for you? really getting into it. So for me, when I came to the EBI and Sanger, we wanted to, along with Zam and Nick, we wanted to look at mobile genetic elements and how they're distributed in all in within bacteria and how they've evolved over time. Those sort of questions were what we were interested in asking. But really, we wanted to apply this to, you know, all data that was available. And so at the, just when I joined, the demo was available and that had everything up to end of 2016 and it was indexed just based on the reads. And so I could do my queries in Big Z and I could get out the data sets that had my element of interest. But when it came to analysis, I really wanted, and also to know some extra information about the what's in the assembly, such as other you know, plasmid replicons or what AMR genes did it contain. And so that led to you know, one conversation with uh, Nick and Zam, where Nick was like, let's just assemble it all. And so that was probably early November, 2018. And then we pulled in Martin, who's uh, Martin Hunt, which is, who's an amazing developer and bioinformatician. And yeah, he, over like three weeks, put together our download pipeline and assembly pipe and then you know i spent the next six months actually running the the pipeline and getting all the 661,405 bacterial assemblies yeah and so now these are all up on an ftp server via the ena i think isn't it we are in the process of submitting them to the ena they're going to be classed as third-party assemblies it's also been about a year and a half of trying to figure out how they class our assemblies and how they wanted to upload them and make sure it was in a form that, you know, NCBI would also agree with and the DDJ as well. But yeah, so yeah, on the FTP, but hopefully we'll be in the ENA and um, SRA soon. Sam, anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I think, I think it's quite exciting trying to build. I, 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 at the start of this, I was really, I was sort of keen not to do the assemblies if I possibly could. When we did Big Z, we were just, I mean, it's because short read assemblies are imperfect anyway. And, you know, sometimes things are, have got mixtures and so on. But it is so much more valuable having the assemblies and being able to actually properly align and try and figure out what's going on, especially when you're trying to work out, you know, the history of some mobile element and whether it's inserted in, in another mobile element or, or whatever. So it's taken, it's taken longer than we expected. Although, I mean, we were obviously flat, you know, but just, just all of the, the curation that Grace has had to go through in order to, to get something, you know, of high enough quality. I think it, it's just going to be really useful for people to have. I mean, one of the things we've been having to justify people recent, to people recently was, like, you know, th does it matter that they're all assembled the same way? You know, because you could just take collections of assemblies that already exist. And it depends what you're going to do. But if, if you're trying to look for a signal across all of these genomes and there are all these sort of implicit batch effects because some of them have been assembled with one tool and some with another, and you find a subtle signal, it, you've, got, you've got to work quite hard to persuade yourself that it's not actually uh, an artifact of different assemblies being used. So it, it depends what you're going to do, but th there is a real value in having a sort of completely uniform system for assembly and QC for the whole thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if, if your interest is the fringe elements, the mobile genetic elements, repetitive elements that tend to be more problematic, I can imagine if 
you pulled in a bunch that were just done on velvet or something like that, they would not be comparable. Yeah, exactly. But I think people have sort of forgotten, people have forgotten the old days when assemblers were really, when you really did get different outputs from different assemblers. Well, it's a, it's a funny time of, it's a funny time for us now because at one level with long read assemblers, we're sort of expecting really perfect assemblies. And so now looking at Illumina assemblies, they seem much worse than, you know, they would have done before. I mean, yeah, I, I sort of look forward to a place, time when we can have this many assemblies. I mean, I mean that's really where, it's really where we have to go. That would be the dream, yeah. That, that definitely be something amazing. But I mean, we touched on a few of the different use cases already with, with digging around for mobile genetic elements or AMR. But what are some of the others that, that come that for you were the main motivations for this work? I suppose what I want to mention here is more the extra indices that we put on top. So yeah, making it searchable was a big thing and that was the cobs. But the other thing was we wanted to actually be able to look at how the like the phylogenetic relationship between the genomes that did, you know, contain any gene or sequence of interest. And so that really led us to doing at first the sour mash index. So we sketched each of the assemblies and then put that into an index. And so that really allows, like, if you've, say, got a new genome and you want to see how is it related to anything we've seen before, you should be able to sketch it and search it against this database and you'll be able to get out however many of its closest neighbours um, that you're after. And then the other thing, then we've kind of followed this up uh, with John Lee's uh, PP sketch and that really it performs a core and uh, accessory genome distance estimation and so then we're able to yeah, actually have uh, putative you know, relationships between these genomes and compare trees. Nothing you know, too fancy, but enough to tell you if you've maybe got a cluster of very closely related strains or if they're different clades within a species. You've given the kind of answer I might have expected myself to give. So I'll give the kind of answer I'd expect you to give, which is like, there's just so many unknowns with transposon and plasmid and other mobile element biology. And to get to give definitive answers, you sort of need to do very careful, but to get good hypotheses, I mean, this is, this is, you know, this is really fertile ground. So I'm kind of excited about sort of picking individual transposons and things and following them up through the data and trying to understand how and when they, well, when is quite hard to estimate, but you know, where, where they're more and less abundant, how they've changed. Again, it's, it, it's all sort of circumstantial, but lo looking at what correlates with what, particularly stuff like spacer elements, what correlation is there between spacer elements and the, and the mobile elements you do and don't find inside genomes, that kind of thing. There's, there's, there's so much stuff to it. I have like a laundry list of genes of interest or structures of interest that I, I would love to kind of get, dig into this and go after, you know, once, maybe once in a, in a glorious future where COVID isn't a problem. I mean, there's a, from, from, from the other Jekyll and Hyde half of my personality, I'm quite keen on, I, basically, so there's a weird thing that, look, Kamer indexes are a bit like Google. They're sort of like a document retrieval problem. So in Google, you sort of, you know, you pass in a word and you want to know which web page contains it. And here you pass in a Kamer and you want to know which genome. And the, the language, obviously, bacterial language is so much more complicated than English or French or whatever, but it is that kind of problem. And, and there are a lot of super clever computer scientists out there with very clever ways of in, you know, doing these kind of indexes. And it, you, you can already see, I mean, it's, it's four years, I guess, since Briggsy came out. And there's so many different approaches now which are more efficient. So I'm, I'm, I'm keen, I think this data set is, is just a really useful data set for people to benchmark on. And you, you've already seen this amazing paper for Ryan Cheeky and co where they they're building sort of minimizer to point graphs where the, the alphabet is 
minimizers instead of bases. I think it's really important for us, for people who care about the majority of the majority of cellular life on this planet, as opposed to humans, that we, we have to make sort of data sets and the kind of problems we want to answer. We want to make that sort of really clear because there's a bioinformatics tools end up inevitably be uh, attuned for the for the use case that you want them to use them on. And it's very easy for things to, to get super tuned for working really well on human genomics, which is important, but it's different. And I think we need to, you know, I, I actually think there's room for, this is overkill, but you know, instead of how many 22 problems for mathematics, it, it's that sort of bioinformaticians problems when they're trying to deal with bacteria. I think the, the kinds of problems you want to answer and the kind of data that you deal with are very different because there's just billions of years of diversity in there. So I, I think just from a, from a, just providing data for other people to innovate on this. But definitely, I see this as a, a step change towards more of a data analytics thing that everyone else does in other fields and in computer science generally, where biology has sort of been a bit behind with because it is difficult to articulate exactly what we're trying to do and trying to look for. I kind of, I tried to explain the kind of genomic data to physicists and they just lost their head. They're just like, what kind, how would you deal with that much error in your sequencing? What do you, what do you mean? You can't trust it. Like, what are you doing with it in the first place then? I mean, that is a challenge that it keeps changing, especially particularly with nanopore data, right? And that you know the, the error style changing, and even the base call is changing, and it's hard it's hard to compare genomes base call with different methods. So I think I'll I'll cross back and and ask Grace about the AMR results in the paper because that I think is the most I suppose the most sizable biological uh, result I think, or maybe I'm wrong. But would you, you want to take us through that and what was the main take homes from from that analysis when you've looked at? 600 odd thousand genomes, what, do you, what can you tell us? Yeah, so I suppose I just want to yeah, preface this with some caveats with how the analysis was done in the way that yeah, all of this is predicted. So it doesn't necessarily mean genotype does not mean phenotype, but also it, we're missing you know, mutational resistance. And that was just uh, to do with how it was run. And so that's you know, for definitely for some organisms, it's like you know, the major pathway to resistance. And the other thing is just because I was running it on everything at one time, there have been some you know, sneaky core genes that get counted as uh, resistance genes. So I have, where possible, I've tried to note that, but overall ignoring, well, moving forward from those uh, caveats, it does show us, uh, yeah, some pretty interesting trends. There are some genomes with a huge number of antimicrobial resistance genes. Like I think there were some in E. coli and Klebsiella that had from 32 to 34 different antimicrobial resistance genes. And yeah, I, I want to check these like isolates just to be you know sure that there wasn't you know any like strong sign of contamination in the genomes themselves, but they looked, yeah, pretty clean. So yeah, there's some very resistant things out. When we were kind of just like plotting the number of resistance genes per genome in a genus, you could see some like, you know, definite peaks from certain genera. And when we compared back to, you know, the WHO priority list for bacterial pathogens, where there's a real need to uh, develop new antibiotics because they are so antimicrobial resistant. Yeah, we see yeah the same genera coming up. So these are sort of some problems that we already knew about, but there is quite a number of species that came up that, you know, aren't on that list. And so potentially might be problems in the future or might be reservoirs of antimicrobial resistance genes for our more problematic clinical species. Uh, so I noticed that TB isn't even on that list. So is TB still a problem? I think if I read the introduction to the to that paper, the one that says like the WHO priority pathogen list, it then says 
and TB as like a secondary. It's like, it's because the numbers for TB are so high, it just dwarfs everything else in the graph, right? It's sort of, I mean, I think there's more, yeah. I think it dominates. And, and in, from, the, from the point of view of this analysis, I mean, Grace was only looking for gene presence rather than SNP-driven SNP stuff, so it wouldn't have, wouldn't have shown up. Yeah, TB is a scary problem. There's lots of interesting science, but it's, it's as much or more a political and social problem of ending poverty at some level, as much as, as, much as you know, diagnostics and surveillance and drugs. I mean, all of, all of which are important particular drugs um yeah it's a huge it's a huge deal just to go back to uh something you said there grace you mentioned that you found some e coli with huge numbers of amr genes so is there duplicates like are they targeting the same drugs and it's just they're become super resistant to particular drugs or is it just kind of a, a spread of everything both like i think there's you know quite a broad range of coverage but there definitely is some redundancy like i'm pretty sh i've seen isolates i can't tell you specifically about those ones that you know, have three different sulfonamide resistance genes where you know one is definitely enough to confer resistance to uh, high levels of resistance to sulfonamides so there definitely is some redundancy in there but also with that many i'd also expect it to cover the broad range of potential antimicrobials that would be thrown at it so i guess you'd call these something like absurdly drug resistant as opposed to multi-drug resistant i mean without the testing i wouldn't want to call them pan but my guess is they'd probably be towards that. That's pretty scary, isn't it? I wish yeah. a better way of strain banking rather than just, just genome banking so we could test things. I mean, there'd be a ton of work to set up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you really hope there's a big fitness cost there. Yeah. I mean, the other kind of thing to comment on with this is we do know that like a lot of sequencing projects will actually select for resistance. So you might be plating on a particular antimicrobial already. Like I know a lot of people do it for the like, you know, third generation cephalosporins or carbapenem resistance they want to uh, select for in their particular maybe hospital. And so a, what, a lot of what gets through into, into the sequencing databases are the ones that are already resistant. So I think it would be really worthwhile to also make sure you're pairing it with a susceptible isolate from if you're doing it from a hospital. Or... Yeah, let's talk more generally about that. The issue of sample bias, because obviously people are sequencing, especially isolates, it's what's culturable. They're sequencing what's clinically relevant. For you, how was that readily apparent in the data set? Did that cause problems? Yeah, definitely apparent. So for example, we just look at the species breakdown of the 661,000. 90% of that data comes from just 20 bacterial species. Almost 30% of it is just Salmonella enterica alone. Definitely huge biases in what species um, are collected, but even within species, so say we go into like E. coli, huge numbers of ST11, which is a 157H7 a serotype, so really important in disease, but also things like ST131 and things that seem to, like they're overrepresented in the data compared to, you know, all the other STs sequence types of E. coli. So you've got, yeah, you've got your species level biases, you've got uh, within the species bias and then we've got selecting for particular resistant isolates bias as well because yeah. you've got the us cdc fda are doing sequencing phe are doing sequencing but then other countries do virtually no sequencing which does I mean, compound no, you're totally right and you could think of that as funding bias rather than country bias actually because so grace has a statistic which i've forgotten that it's like so, like a handful of sequencing cover i don't know what it is tens of percent of that data so great yeah, 50 oh, no, projects 50 percent of the data yeah 50 sequencing projects. Yeah, I mean, bulk of it's going to be because for things like Genome Tracker or the PHE enteric bacterial submissions, they're all just going into one bio project. 
because it's a pain in the neck to keep setting up new projects, really. And I guess no one is really looking at those either if they're just kind of regulatory turning the handle type sequencing. So actually, it's probably a very nice data set to mine if you can handle it. Yeah, and I mean, actually something that we've done in response to reviewers was to compare like the composition of our data set against you know the genome assemblies in NCBI and the Patrick database and through just comparing the sample accession ID uh, which is present in each we actually found that we've got over 300,000 assemblies that weren't in NCBI assembly prior to this so they only existed in the read database and so yeah like you said we're probably not looked at or analyzed in any sort of great detail when is enough sequencing enough you know when do we stop for a particular pathogen like say take tb is 100,000 tb enough and can we just stop because it's all the same zam it depends on your goal i i've got about three answers to that one is TB is unusual because sequencing it is directly useful for treatment. So you get information that's directly, that directly allows you to decide what drugs you can treat with. So we're actually moving in a direction of more countries starting to sequence you know, by routine, routinely. So for the individual patient on that basis, then we're going to keep going. See what I mean? You could legitimately argue that we maybe don't need to share it, but I would legitimately argue that we should keep it in particular because we, we don't know now what's important and we can later on discover that you know, some mutation caused drug resistance, and then you can look back and say, actually, that appeared in 2016 or whatever. So like, for example, people have discovered that the bedaquilin resistance first appeared before people started treating with bedaquilin. We don't know why. There are potentially shared mechanisms with resistance to anti-leprosy drugs and clofazmine, but it's not totally clear that those drugs are really heavily used, certainly not in South Africa. So um, I think basically uh, biology is complicated and, and, and drugs are only one selection pressure and resistance mutations are not just resistance mutations, you know, they, they, they have cellular metabolic effects. I think that's a cheap answer that we're going to need to keep sequencing because, because of diagnostics. I think you're right that if nothing much was going on now, you can learn a lot about ancient history without having hundreds of thousands of genomes because it's all, it depends how far in the deep past you want to go. The thing is that we're applying all these pressures now, and we sort of want to know what's happening now. So that, you know, there's interesting examples. For example, so here's an interesting one. Quite commonly for TB, where you test with line probe assays, so it's effectively PCR testing for specific SNPs. If there's a resistant SNP that's not on your list, it's not in your PCR test, that's a selective advantage for that bug because, you know, you don't treat it appropriately. And so you actually, you're actually seen outbreaks where we're basically diagnostic sele driven selection for um, mutations that are not in your catalogue. The chlamydia in Sweden, uh, a few years ago in Sweden, they had a huge drop in cases of chlamydia and it turned out it was just the particular PCR primers they're using weren't working anymore. And those primers were on a plasmid. Oh, really? Like it was selecting, it was trying to detect a plasmid, which like I have heard is very stable in chlamydia. It's normally always there, but some changes happened. Yeah. So it wasn't even like on the like chromosome, the um, marker. Oh, wow. But anyway, so I, I mean, I think as long as changes are going to be started, and in particular, so first of all, we'd like to notice when resistance appears to new drugs. Um, and we're pretty sure it's going to happen fast. And we want to, when it happens, we sort of want to try and backtrack and sort of find out when it appeared and where else it is. If you're rolling out a regimen somewhere, I think it, in theory, it would be important to know, you know, is resistance. There? I mean, that's me being paranoid. It's not a super high likely thing, but uh, I think... In, in principle, when you're testing a new, uh, new antimicrobial, how do you test? I mean, obviously you test in the lab. In principle, you would have clinical trials. It would be really good if we started deep sequencing people in clinical trials and noticing low frequency mutations which start to appear and so on. And if I was a drug manufacturer, I would quite like the ability, to, if I knew something caused resistance, I'd quite like the ability to go and check 
you know, is it out there already? Or is this, a, you know, at least a priori something that, that doesn't exist in the world yet? It depends. Anyway, another, another answer, which is maybe more constructive. If you want to know how much AMR or whatever there is out there in the world, there are other species we need to be sampling rather than the ones we already have had. Yeah. Some systematic random sampling from across the world would be super valuable. Yeah. And just, you know, yeah, increasing the diversity. So not just maybe different species, but also the same species that we care about, but in different places in the world from different environments. All of that, I think, would you know, really be valuable and would increase what we know about bacteria. I guess even what's inside us, you know, we don't have to look too far. There's so mm. many bugs inside us. We only have uh, terrible mags for and not, not even uh, isolates. So start at home. I mean, we have to go back and redo all of this for different growth conditions, don't we? Yeah, we do have to do that. I mean, the work never ends. <laughs> Like microtiter plates with different growth conditions, different drugs. Yeah, that's the way forward. Well, it's one way forward. We're going to be busy for a while, even if it wasn't for COVID. Great. We, we have a job then for the next few decades. You're just, we're just advertising that we should have a job for life. Well, until someone comes up with a sequencing technology where we can just get the full chromosome out, you know, a single cell goes in, magic full chromosome, full plasmids, push for button. Well, that, that, I, that would be great. But let, let's say I give you 10,000 perfect genomes and you want to understand either their evolutionary history or, you know, how things are related and things like that. It's still, it's not straightforward, in particular because bacteria have pangenomes and they don't, you know, it's not strictly clonal evolution. I think there's, there's a lot of open and interesting stuff going on. The obvious stuff, which is, you know, the, the difference between the clonal inheritance and genes move in and out and what compensatory mutation happens when stuff arrives and this kind of stuff. And then the, the bonkers stuff with phage and plasmids and mobile elements and what stuff's going on there. I mean, I, I, I actually think, you know, once, once we're at that place that you're talking about where you can get perfect genomes out, which is not miles away, just, I think we're just going to start seeing so much fast stuff happening. Like the, the mobile stuff is so much faster than SNP. Yeah. I think that's Lots only really the end of the beginning. Yeah. There's, there's an entire universe to unravel there. I think that's exciting rather than scary, but it, well, maybe it's a bit of both. Yeah. Yeah, that's the bit that I'm really waiting for. So what else is, as you mentioned, like that's one way of the future. What else is, is on the cards in terms of the future directions? Maybe we can couch it in just this preprint. What next? I mean, you've got review comments to do and then catch up with the other, you know, over half a million to do. And Grace has a way, then we'll we'll sort it out for protein search. I think that's, 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 been, that's been aggressively going up the priority list. I think that would be, I mean, COBS doesn't care what alphabet your data's in, so we, we could six-way translate everything and then search it that way. What um, would be the advantage of, of protein, say, if you did it that way? And uh, yeah, what, what what would you do with it? I, I, um, I can tell you what I'd want, you know, if, if I'd protein search. And maybe you can solve it then. Uh, I, I want pathways, right? I want to know which pathway is in, you know, all these different bugs so I can go on a fishing expedition and then just pull out all the stuff I need. So that's... That, that's much more than just a sequence algorithm yeah. question. I, I, well, it, it's the next level, you know, you go up to proteins yeah, yeah. and then you join the proteins together and you have some kind of mechanical process or whatever. So, you know, it's all about joining the dots and you've got the nucleotides and now you're going to protein. And then the next obvious level is, you know, what does it do? Yeah, I'm still stuck on the how to get the best proteins out of all my assemblies. That question, because I, if we just, you know, do we run Procker on everything and just take what it says, where we know that you can you know, improve your annotations if you do it for a particular species and maybe you give it a good reference genome, or do we just, you know, six-way translation, translate everything and then just build a COBS index on that instead. But then we're going to have a potential junk. So yeah, no, I'm still stuck at the, the, how do we do the next step? But yeah, I can definitely see in the long run what you're suggesting would be very useful. And, and we've sneakily not answered Nabil's question, which is who cares about protein? Why do you need protein search? 
I mean, but Grace said before that, you know, these Kema things, they only really work for really, really close matches. And if you're looking for things that are more evolutionarily diverged, basically amino acids are more conserved than DNA. So you can sort of look further away in the tree. I mean, for me, what comes to mind is looking at, at some of the garbage, like pseudogenation, looking at pseudogenes and how they're distributed, because that's going to tell you a fair bit about which which clades are moving into different niches, which have recently moved into a different niche, that sort of thing. Now, which, which, are, which are, you know, only sort of variably pseudogenes, if you to me, within a species, and which are sort of consistently as well. Anything else from you two you'd like to, to promote or plug? Or I think one question we didn't ask is, is there any new software coming out? So I, I can plug two things, but one is a mystery. So one of the limitations of what we do at the moment is it's not proper blast, right? We sort of break things up into camas and sort of say, you know, demand that certain number of them are present. And that, that works pretty well, but it's not, it's not a proper alignment. And there is a mystery person out there somewhere who I think is making big progress towards being able to do that on these size date sets. So I think you should look out for that. I'll point them to you, but reveal. And then less, less, less mysteriously. I mean, we're, I mean, in the group, we're spending a lot of time working on how to how to look at you know simultaneously study SNP and gene presence diversity. So our Pandora paper is sort of still in review, but I think a lot of we're going to do a lot of exciting things with that. But basically, allowing you to sort of look at mutational changes within the accessory genome and and you know, and thereby how that impacts phenotype. Lots of stuff in the field coming, I think. All right. Any think... final words from you, Grace? I'm really excited to use this data set for what, start using it for what we designed when we went yes, out, which was project, to yeah. actually start looking at, you know, distribution and diversity and of mobile elements and potentially predicting new ones from all the data out there. But, you know, we realized you know, along the way that this was just, you know, one use case for all of these assemblies and this resource. And so we really wanted to make it public and get it out there. And yeah, so I really hope that, you know, the community finds it useful. And if they do have any troubles or questions about trying to utilize it or run it, then yeah, please yeah, send us an email and I'll help where. And, and we really will try and make it web searchable. That is, a, we, I, I've been saying that for like 18 months, but we really will. All right. And on that, we'll end this episode. So I want to thank Sam and Grace for joining us today. And we've been talking today about some really exciting new developments in the area of comparative genomics. And that's it for the MicroBinfi podcast. See you later. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.